0: Well, good afternoon, church guys. It really is good to see uh, many of your faces. Feel free if you would like to wear a mask. Feel free to do that as well. We're doing optional masking at this point. And just to give you a quick update, we did meet with our leaders today, our community group leaders, and we're talking about our sort of plan to move back to Brighton and what that looks like. So, if you're a guest, Newton is just a temporary home. This church has been really gracious to allow to meet here, but it's only temporary. And we've got sort of a three-pronged approach that we're going to talk about a little bit in the weeks to come of how we'll get back to Brighton. But more on the way. Uh, but if you are a guest, guys, we have been journeying through the book of Ephesians for a long time, a good long time. And we've spent the past two weeks really diving into Ephesians chapter 6. And we're looking at this concept of spiritual warfare. And I'm just curious, have you guys heard many messages or done lots of studies about spiritual warfare? Raise your hand if that's you. Anybody? So this topic might be somewhat familiar to us, but a lot of us, this is a fairly new thing for us to unpack this concept of maybe evil or sin that's in us or around us that kind of affects the way we think and feel in the world around us. And so what we've been doing is we've been unpacking these verses. And let me read it to you in verse 10 here. It says this, it starts this way. Uh, Paul, the author says, finally, be strong in the Lord because of all this stuff going on and in the strength of his might, And then he says, put on the whole armor of God. And that's what we've been talking about, right? The whole armor of God and all the pieces of it was what we've been unpacking. There's lots of metaphors about the pieces of an armor. So he says that you may be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. And then skip down to verse 13. He says, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. So that's what we've been doing. And this is our third and final week on this Armor that we've been talking about with spiritual warfare. So, let me tell you real quick uh, where we've been and where we're going. So, this is a bit of a recap and a roadmap. We've talked about the belt of truth, right? The, bless, the breastplate of righteousness, uh, the shoes of gospel peace. And this week, we're going to talk about the last four things of the armor. We're going to look at the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, the sword of the spirit. And then this fourfold prayer method that Paul gave us, right? That we would pray at all times, we'd pray for all reasons, we'd pray with all perseverance, and we'd pray for all the saints. That's kind of where we're going. And so let's just jump right in and look at the shield of faith. Now, if you guys remember, uh, Paul right now is in jail uh, and there's Roman guards around where he is. So when he's thinking about the spiritual warfare of uh, an enemy or a, a devil or demons, he's, he's also having mind that he needs some sort of spiritual armor to endure the attacks that he is facing or the, the persecution that he's enduring as a Christian. So he looks over in jail and he's seeing this Roman guard and God inspires the thought on his mind to, talk about how we can spiritually protect ourselves like a Roman soldier. So we take the different elements of it. He talked about the the helmet and the breastplate and the shoes and the sword. And this week we're coming to the second part of that and we get to shield of faith. The shield of faith. And we've got to figure out, guys, what does Paul mean by the shield of faith, right? What's he mean by the shield of faith? He starts talking about flaming darts. What does that mean? Because no one throws flaming darts anymore in warfare that I know of? Maybe you do, I don't know. We could talk about that later. If you throw darts at people that are on fire, probably didn't have a conversation if that's you. And then how do you extinguish these metaphorical darts with this metaphorical shield, right? So we've got to do some work a little bit to understand this. Well, Let's look at verse 16, okay? Paul says this, he says, guys, in all circumstances, no matter what you're facing, you're going to need a shield of faith. And why? It's so that you can extinguish all, every type of flaming dart that's thrown at you from the evil one. So let's look first here. What does Paul mean when he says shield of faith? Because that's really key for us to understand. What is this even talking about? Well, listen, uh, the type of shield that Paul has in mind is not that little Zelda shield in the video game, right? Where you just put it on your arm and it kind of just covers your chest area. Or as cool as the shield is in Captain America, um, and that wasn't like in Paul's day, that was still a small shield. And if you notice, Captain America can't hide his whole entire body behind that. What's in Paul's mind about the shield is this massive Roman shield. It's huge. And guys, it would cover your entire body. We got a picture up there, sort of a rendition of what this would look like. Now, listen, the shields during that day were built from like two or three really large slabs of wood. They were massive and they would be nailed together. And they were covered, guys, with a really thick hide of an animal, a thick leather hide that would would stretch over the wood then they would nail it down and reinforce it with sort of a metal strip at the top and a metal strip at the bottom so that they could extinguish the arrows and protect themselves that were, that were shot at them, right? So you can imagine uh, having this type of shield was vital for Roman soldiers. They needed this shield to protect themselves. And why? Because the shield was both a defensive strategy against these flaming arrows, right? But it was also an offensive strategy like some of you might have seen, I'm not recommending, just get that out there. But you might have seen the movie 300, where all of those soldiers from Sparta, they kind of get all of you are like, yeah, I've seen that movie. Let's watch this community group, right? Some of you were like, yeah, like you got a little too into it when I mentioned that reference, right? There, there's no combination, I'm just playing. Um, but they all kind of got their shields and they interlocked them, didn't they? And they all got together with each other and they moved in an offensive way, to push back the enemy, right? Do you remember that? They didn't just hide there, they they pushed forward that way. So we're seeing it's with this defensive idea of the Roman shield and the offensive idea of the Roman shield that Paul has this in mind when he tells you and me, take up the shield of faith. We're going to need a defensive strategy and an offensive strategy when we fight against the enemy. So that's what's in Paul's mind when he's thinking of shield of faith, this massive protection that you're going to need against the enemy. That's also an offensive strategy as well. That's what his mind is to start out. So that leads us then to the second and third part of this, right? That leads us to ask the question, so what does this shield or the flaming darts like represent? Because this is metaphorical. What does it represent? Like, what do they mean? And more importantly for us, practically everyday life, right? We need to know like, how do we use this shield? Because no one's going to walk around with this massive, th- these shields were like four foot tall, two or three foot deep. No one's going to walk around with a door. I'm ready to fight the enemy, right? That's just a weird way to do spiritual things. That's a really odd way. So in Roman warfare, uh, flaming arrows usually came at you when you drew closest to enemy territory, it didn't always happen. They weren't just shooting arrows at each other all the time. It only happened when you got close to the enemy's territory. When you drew close to them, you would crouch down behind this four or five foot shield and you would angle it sort of above your body. And why? Because it was at this point in the war, when you're close to enemy territory, that you're most vulnerable because the enemy has the upper hand in this moment. They have the castle walls and they have the archers at the top. And this was the most vulnerable moment in Roman warfare because you're the closest to taking down enemy territory. So what would the enemy do in that day and age? They would hurl down or shoot down flaming objects. Now, listen, guys, if you think it's bad to see your comrade in war next to you get shot down with an arrow, which is terrible, imagine it's another level when they're shot down with a flaming arrow, it's a whole other thing when you see their face and their hair and their body, God forbid, on fire, right? They would cause chaos and fear. That's why they did that. So in the night sky, you would see your comrade be lit on fire. It would cause fear and panic and you would retreat. That's why they did that. So the enemy shoots these arrows at us to create fear and, and panic and despair amongst each other to cause us to retreat from enemy territory. So what is the imagery that Paul's getting at here? Are we to go against the government or education system or financial economy? What are we we talking about here? What seems that every time the Bible brings up the imagery of fire or fiery, it paints some picture of suffering or, or judgment we see in the Bible. So Paul's using the imagery of a fiery dart to paint a picture that you and I go through suffering. And in this case, the sufferings at the hand of an enemy So for example, uh, the apostle Peter writes in his book, 1 Peter chapter four, he says, beloved to the church, he says, beloved, do not be surprised when fiery trials come upon you. Or if you've read Daniel chapter three in the Bible, we see how faithful followers of God named Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they were thrown into a what? A fiery furnace. And what was that? It was their suffering at the hand of the enemy as a judgment for not worshiping the false gods. And they remained faithful. So it's with this idea in mind of suffering and judgment that Paul says, hey, watch out, church, guard yourself. There is an enemy that's seeking to bring suffering and pain in your life as a form of fire to harm you when you draw close to enemy territory. Keep that in mind. Now, side note, have you ever noticed, I just wanna be raw and real in here. Have you ever noticed that when you're trying to get your life together the most, like when you decide to deal with that bad habit in your life, when you're trying to live out your faith more, you're trying to parent well, you're trying to be better in your marriage, you're starting a new job, whatever, you're trying to do something great for God. The more likely and the more struggles you actually feel like you face. Have you ever, have you ever noticed that? When you're trying to get your life together, make it a good decision, love your kids well, you feel like you're under more attack. Things are harder for you. Why is that? Well, it's the reason why Paul says in Romans chapter 7, when I try to do what's right, he says, evil lies close at hand. Guys, the reason some of you have flaming arrows shot at you is because you're actually drawing close to harming enemy territory. Like you're trying to seek and honor God. You're actually following his ways. Guys, you started this church You're trying to have children or adopt children in the image of God. You're leading out in ministry. You're loving one another. Guys, you're trying to advance the kingdom. And so what happens? That's offensive to the enemy. And so when you're close to enemy territory in Roman warfare, arrows that were flaming were shot at you. And that's what Paul's getting to. There are times when you get so close to the enemy where you're being shot at directly. And some of you have probably felt that. Maybe you're newly married and you're like, oh, why are are we somewhat okay when we were dating? But why is there so much more fighting now that we're married? What does marriage represent? The gospel. So what is the enemy trying to strike down? Your marriage. Because what's it represent? The gospel. Do you see what I'm saying? Why is it so hard for a new church sometimes to get off the ground and and, and, and like be a, a force in the community? I'm not saying the pandemic is like of the wharf, don't don't like do weird stuff with all of what I'm trying to say, but you guys get what I'm saying, right? Why why is certain things so challenging when you have a new little baby in your home or in your family's life or you got a new job and you're like, I'm gonna move to another state? Why is it so hard? when you're trying to live out God's ways because you're close to enemy territory. You're in the sights now. You're being shot at. So what are you supposed to do? What does he do? What does the enemy do? He shoots arrows of doubt and shame your way about your marriage or how you treat your kids or how your job's going or how you're a failure. He shoots arrows of doubt. He'll light up arrows of fear or worry or anxiety in the night. Do you guys... If you struggle with anxiety, when does anxiety normally hit you? Is it during lunchtime with your friends or is it in the middle of the night when you're trying to sleep and you can't stop scrolling Instagram and you just feel a little anxious? You know what I'm talking about? Like, why does it happen in the night? These kind of arrows getting shot at you so you don't sleep as well, right? Then you're irritable the next day. And then are you thinking about the Lord the next day? No, you're thinking about how tired you are. Do you see how it's all connected? Like, I know this is like, I'm like, there's a boogeyman in the corner type of feel, but like, I just want to kind of draw a blanket out and say like, do you guys kind of see what's happening with all of this? He'll stir up something in your marriage. He'll stir up something at your job or with your friend group. He'll send a fiery trial, like a loved one passing away or a breakup with someone who meant everything to you. Why does he do that? It's because you're, you're making progress for the kingdom of God. Have any of you talked to Haley and Bradley lately? Many of you have. What's their experience been like? Fire after fire, after fire, after fire, with this adoption. By God's grace, there's been great progress, but with a lot of heartache, a lot of challenge. Why? Because they're making progress. Making pro- Does that make sense, guys? So w- when you feel that sort of hardship level in your life, it's not because you're in a bad place. It's actually because you're on the front lines. You're like right up there next to kingdom advancement. Now, same thing happened to Jesus. Look at his whole entire life. If you look at Jesus' entire life, persecution, mockery. This guy's living perfectly the will of God. He had the hardest time. Family betraying him. He was spit and mocked and beat on. The people that he was sent to save, sent him to the cross. You guys know what I'm saying? This is Jesus' life. When When he started his ministry, what was the very first thing in his ministry? What was it? Temptation from the enemy in the wilderness. That was the very first. That's how he started his ministry. 40 days in the desert, he was fasting and Satan visited him himself, tried to tempt Jesus to fall away. That's how he started his ministry. The arrows were at Jesus. The arrows are at you. The doubt, the fear, all of that may be because you're getting close to making an impact. Have you seen this? I think some of you have. It makes sense. When you're on the front lines of God's will, you will face fiery arrows. Uh, Another side note here, guys, and please, like, I'm not trying to be a jerk and I'm not like calling anybody individually out here, but just hear me out and be gracious for a second. But listen, for some of you, you feel like, bro, I don't know what you're talking about. I don't feel these arrows. My life is fine. And to be honest, why is that the case? It's probably because you've already been hit by the arrow is why you don't feel the arrows. Like you've already been shot down by the arrows of materialism or an all-consuming job or a relationship or a hobby or some pursuit in your life that derailed you from God's will. So the enemy looks at you and says, there's there's really no no need to waste another arrow on this one. We've already taken them down. They're distracted. They're pleasure-seeking. They're seeking out marriage all the time and making that an idol. They're comfort-seeking. They're just not a bother anymore. So I'm not trying to be a jerk, but maybe you're not feeling that because you've already been taken down in the first shot. And so you're like, I don't, yeah, I don't think I'm experienced because you were shot with materialism. You were shot with your job. You're shot with something else that derailed you from actually living out God's will. Does Does that make sense? That's how the enemy works. If you're not feeling it, you're gonna feel it. And if you're not feeling it, we might consider, were you taken down by something else that derailed you? You know, one of the best tactics of the enemy is to give you a comfortable life. A life where you don't depend on God. You don't pray. You don't try hard. You're safe. Relationships are fine. You get the in the South, it was always, you, you get your house, you get your picket fence, you get your lawn, you get your car, you pass off your kids, you die. That's a good life. The enemy would love nothing more for that to happen. You just live your cushy life until you die. That's, that's, the, that's the life he wants you to live. So I'm thinking that's, that could be what's happening with us as well. So either way, whether you're advancing the kingdom or We've been shot down by an arrow. What do we do? There's not supposed to be guilt here. So what do we do in response? How do we fight off the fiery arrows that happen to us to try to derail us from God's will? What do we say? Well, Paul says, in verse 16, here's what you do. In all circumstances, he says, in those temptations, in the anxiety, in the trials of life, here's what we do. We take up the shield of faith. We we take it up with which we can extinguish all of the types of the flaming darts of the evil one. So listen, some of you right now, as I'm speaking or online, uh, you have flaming arrows coming down on you from like all sides. Haley and Bradley that often listen to our messages, that's happening to them. Some of you right now feel that in your marriage. You feel that with your kids. You feel that with your life because you're trying to honor the Lord. Others of you, listen up. The arrows will come for you if they're not already. So the question for all of us is, what are you going to do about it? How are you going to process this? How are you going to raise the shield of faith? Now, just a pastoral note here in this section here, um, the faith shield that helps you is not the like amount of faith that you can have. For some of us, we may grow up in faith circles that you weren't healed uh, because you didn't have enough faith. Or you may have grew up in a circle where uh, because you didn't have enough faith, you didn't get that job or God didn't come through. It was, it was like your fault. And so you were taught to muster up your own faith and get it as big and strong as you possibly can. And then God was like, oh, I can see that faith down there. I see that shining shield. Yeah, sure, I'll help you out. But is that how God operates? Does he look at the muster of your strength? No, the the faith shield that helps you is not the amount of faith that you have, but the object of the faith that you have, meaning this. Meaning the shield that helps you It's not the faith you have towards God, but the faithfulness that God has towards you. That's so key. And you raise that faithfulness above your head and remind yourself of what God has done, that he covers you, that he's your refuge, that he will see you through. And even when you can't see the good in that bad situation, God shields the situation to ensure that it works out for your good. Does that make sense? You don't muster up the amount. It's not about your faith in God. It's about God's faithfulness to you. And you hold that above your head and you're reminded of that. Does that make sense, guys? Let's dive a little bit. Let's get a little bit more personal about what this looks like. When you raise the shield, that means that you're in the most vulnerable and attacked areas of your life. That's when you need it. You didn't need the shield in Roman warfare in every single second of the battle. You needed it in the most vulnerable and attacked areas of your life. And so what you do practically is you take hold of the promises of God and the character of God. You take those two things, promises and character, and you crouch behind them and you angle them above your head to protect your mind and your thoughts. You seek refuge in who God is and what God has promised to you. And you take hold of those things and you don't let go until the fire of that dart is extinguished. So let me just give you a few practical examples of what this looks in my life. Let me just share with you what I struggle with. And let me share with you, I'm not doing it perfectly, but let me show you what my shield looks like for my own life. I think I have a couple of these on the screen uh, for you if you wanna write down the scripture example. Um, The first thing is if when I go through suffering or hardship, for example, my wife and I are unable to have biological children. All of our friends around us can get pregnant by just looking at each other or sneezing and the other person gets pregnant. I know it doesn't work like that, but it seems like that. Trust me, I went to school, went to biology. I know how it works, but that's, it felt like that. And Emma and I would go to doctors after doctors after doctors. I was like, I don't understand what's happening. Um, my sister's going through a really challenging relationship and, and divorced her husband. My dad just actually went, we visited them in Delaware. My dad's got a huge mass on uh, some part of his inside and they've got to go and check that out. And they're thinking it's cancer. And I just like found that out. So I'm like, how do I process some of this news, right? How do I, how do I go through this? I feel like there's a, there's a margin of suffering or hardship. What do I do? What I hold up is not, God, look, I've been, I'm a pastor. I'm a Christian, God, look, shouldn't you just do something for me? I don't hold up my faith. I hold up God's faithfulness above me. God, I'm struggling a little bit here having a hardship. And just to be honest with you guys, uh, when, you're in, when you're like a pastor or a church planner, uh, like many of you are, like, like, like I am, you, you help start this church. Your dream is not to go to Boston, and enter into pandemic with race riots and political fights and, and a pandemic and you shut down. Like that's just, that's a disaster for my heart. I wanna reach my community. So I feel like what I was set up here to do just got derailed a little bit, right? You, some of you felt like that with our church. I'm, I've gone through some little levels of suffering and hardship. So what do I hold up? I hold up Romans eight twenty eight, And if you know me, you know that I hold this up often. It's the only thing I got to stand under. What's Romans 8, say? And I know, and we know that for those who love God, meaning God loved us first, so we even have the ability to love him. So if I love him, it's because he loved me. We all know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. So here I am holding up the shield and saying, God, I don't know why I can't have kids. I don't know why we're in a pandemic. I don't know why this would happen to my sister. I don't know why this happened to my dad. Why would, why would life be so hard for a 33-year-old? Maybe you're thinking the same thing, whatever struggle you're going through. And you hold it up and you say, God, I don't know what you're doing. <laughs> this is hard. I'm tired. I'm frustrated. My kids or my marriage or my job. And you say, I'm going to hold this up. You promise me. You're gonna work out all things for good. I can't see it. I don't know what's gonna happen, but I'm holding this up. Does that make sense? Guys, that's like a daily battle for me. I'm holding this thing up. You promise all things work out for good. I hold that up. The next one, guys, I deal with a ton of guilt and shame. What I said, what I've done before I was a Christian haunts me still. Guys, I'm a pastor that preaches on grace and I still struggle with it. What I've done, who I did it with, why I did it, what I said sticks with me. I do with guilt and shame. I, I, I go to bed fine, secure that I'm loved, and I wake up and I feel like I got to earn it again because of the things I've done, things I've said. So I have to hold up the shield of Romans 8.1. I've got to say, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I look at verse 35 and I hold this up and I said, who shall separate me from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or danger or sword? And I look at verse 38 and I hold it up again. I say, for I'm sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present, things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything in all creation, including my sin, will be able to separate me from this love and grace and forgiveness that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. I hold it up every day because of what I've done and so there is a freedom in this, but it's a daily fight. I've got to hold the shield up. Aaron, you're not good enough to be a pastor. Look what you said, look what you did. And there's no way that your church is ever going to make it because all the things, stuff you've done in the past. There's no, there's no chance. You can't even lead your church back into your community, Aaron. All that fight, right? How can, you, how can you lead them back into Brighton? All of those things. You're not good enough pastor. You don't preach well enough. You don't lead well enough. All those attacks, every day hit me. Every day. It's not your fault. It's part of the warfare. So every day I've got to hold the right thinking above my head or I'll spin. And that's why I need to be in a community group. That's why I am in a community group. That's why I don't lead a community group. I'm in one, I need it. I need a DNA group, I'm in it. Last thing, so I struggle with my significance or my worth. I think that if I work hard enough, if I'm a good enough person, then I'll be valuable. Then I'll be significant. So I gotta have this type of church. I gotta wear these type of clothes. I gotta be this type of parent. I gotta have this type of ministry, blank, whatever in my life. I gotta have this amount of financial, whatever. I gotta have that to mean something, to be significant. What if I don't have that? That I'm nothing, right? So what I hold up as a shield? Romans 8, 8.30. By the way, all my shields are just Romans 8. That's what I just mentioned to you. Romans 8.28, Romans 81, 8.30. That's my shield. I just hold the whole entire passage up above me. But it says this: this proves my significance and helps my heart. I look at this. It's called the golden chain of salvation. Look at verse 30. It says, And those whom God predestined, he called. Those he called, he justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. What that tells me is that I was so significant and you are so significant that God cared for you in the past before he created. He cares for you in the present to bring salvation through Christ and he'll care for you all the way into the future when you're glorified in heaven. God cared for me in the past, in the present, in the future. And so when I think I'm insignificant or God, you don't care about me or look at what I'm going through, I hold this up. And I'm like, you do. You do care about me. I am significant. I am valuable. It doesn't matter what I do. Forget fired at a job or, you know, like whatever we deal with. It doesn't matter. Our output doesn't dictate the input of our significance. We hold up the shield. I was called. Christ died for me. He poured out his blood. He, he, he created me to exist. Out of all the options of people to exist, it's you. Died for you. Lived for you. Rose for you. Protected you living with you, caring for you, pursuing you. One day when you pass away, you don't just go into nothingness, you, you go into heaven with him. If you believe in Christ for all of eternity, where he takes away every heartache and sorrow and trauma and family hurt, this is what I hold up. I'm reminded that that type of God, Saul, in my sin, my darkness, that I was worth it for him to come down and bring me to him. Does that make sense, guys? I just want to be vulnerable with you. That's what, I'm, that's what I deal with. So every day I got to hold that shield? What's your shield? What struggles do you have? How do you, how do you navigate that? Personally, what do you do? So in a practical way, guys, like the leather that covered that shield, because they used to soak it in water and all that moisture would create um, the, the power to extinguish the, the flame. Guys, what practically, how do we like dip our shield and soak it in the gospel, in the, the promises? How do we soak it in the character of God? So when the flaming arrows come, we hold those up and we know what to believe when doubt, anxiety, fear, trauma comes up. That's how we navigate. Does that make sense? Because that's why Christianity could be one of the best ways of self-care, of therapy, of care. I'm not discrediting a secular therapist or anything. I'm just saying that our worldview deals with past, present, and future. It deals with all of it. And God is telling us in there, there's a a battle for your mind. There's a battle for your heart. There's a battle for you. And in this, we see, we soak our shield in the gospel and in God's faithfulness. Does that make sense, guys? The battle's happening to you. So we've got to stop going into battle with the doubt and the depression, the despair, the temptation, the accusations, whatever it is, we got to go in not unprepared anymore. We got to start tonight, today. Today. We got to put these somewhere in our minds and our hearts. I shared last week that my wife has scripture on the bathroom. It's in the the, the shower part and it's in the uh, mirror part and she's putting it on there so we can have it in our minds because we struggle. What's the truth? Got to be anchored in it. Put it on your lock screen, right? Soak yourself in the scriptures like the shield and let it guide you. Let it help you when the arrows come. Does that make sense, guys? Hopefully that's helpful for you like it is for me. Um, Last note with this, I think you guys get this already, but I really like uh, in Roman warfare, they kind of borrowed this from the Spartans that they would interlock their shields and come together. Uh, Sometimes guys, the shield's too heavy for you. You're tired, you're hurting. Your job is hard, parenting's difficult. Something blew up in your life. You did choose that sin again and you are so crumbled. You need someone else to bring their shield around you. You need help. That's what our church is here for. That's why we have community groups. That we have DNA groups that we would confess and be honest with what we deal with. Sometimes you need, you can't pick up the shield because you're struggling. Let someone, else, let someone else pick up theirs and shield for you. Does that make sense, guys? That's what I love even about this imagery because they would come around each other and they would support each other and they could advance that way. Even the weak ones could advance in the shield. Guys, that's what our church is here for. Whether you're strong or weak, this is for you. Make sense? Okay, number two, we gotta move a lot faster. This is your fault, guys. Just kidding. Verse 17 uh, tells us, number two, to take up the helmet of salvation. we got to take up the helmet of salvation. Now, let me show you the picture again of that soldier. These Roman helmets, guys, they were thick. Uh, they were metal. They were heavy on the inside. There was like a squishy sponge part so it wouldn't just kind of sit on your head, all the metal. And guys, it would cover your entire head. It would cover your face. There was a little opening around your eyes so you could see. And these helmets were a very important part of battle. Why? Because they protected your head. And if your head gets damaged, then what happens? It affects the rest of the body. And do you see where Paul is going with this? Your head, your mind is one of the places where Satan wants to attack you, your mind, your thoughts. So Paul tells us to put on this helmet of salvation. Why? To direct your thoughts, to remind your brain of God's character and his promises that are in his word. Now, guys, we're not going to spend a lot of time on this one. And if you're around Koa, you really know that doesn't mean anything when I'm preaching. But we're trying not to spend a lot of time on this one uh, because it's very similar to the shield of faith. But I want to point out a slight difference that I think is important for you. The shield of faith is more talking about a general way that God is faithful towards you. It's a general way, the shield is. The helmet of salvation is a more specific way of talking about God's faithfulness to us in the category of what the Bible calls salvation. So shield is a general way. We hold up God's faithfulness. The helmet is a specific way in the category of salvation that God has been faithful to you. Salvation means that we are saved from something, by someone for a reason. Make sense? That's what salvation is. And so in scripture, we see that for a Christian, salvation is sort of three-pronged. It's three approaches. You were saved from the penalty of sin. This is what Jesus came to do on the cross. There was a penalty for our life because we went against God's ways of human flourishing. We brought sin into the world. And because God is good, he wants to maintain what is good. And we broke that. So God wants to bring judgment. That's hard to hear, but that's true. But God didn't want to bring that judgment to you, so He gave it to His Son so you could be free of judgment. Does it make sense, guys? It's powerful. God is both good and just. And how do we rationalize that? It's both in Christ. Christ took what was yours. So we know that you're saved from the penalty of sin, but we also know that you're being saved currently from the power of sin by the Holy Spirit's power, if you're a Christian. He's creating in you new desires and godly desires so that you don't return to the sin. You're actually like being currently saved from sin's power on you. And then number three, it's the future. You will be saved. You will be saved from even the presence of sin when you live in the glory of heaven. So let me show you another picture again. Yeah, this is the one of what this looks like. So listen, when Satan comes to you with one of these fiery darts, right? Right? and accuses you of spiritual failure. I can't believe you would do this. Can't believe you would look at that. I can't believe you have these desires. I thought you were a Christian. Can't believe you. How would you sin again like this? And he comes with spiritual failure. How do you parent like that? I can't believe you said that to your child or you said that to your spouse and you just feel these onslaughts of, I'm a failure as a parent or with this marriage or whatever the case with my roommate. You feel like you're a failure and you feel worthy of mistreatment. You're like, I should get treated like that, I guess, whatever. What you say in that moment, you say, nope, I've been saved from the penalty of sin. You put on Romans 8, 1 again. You said, now, therefore, now there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I am not what I did. I am not a failure. Christ was victorious. Therefore, I am in him and I am victorious. I am forgiven because Christ forgave me. When the onslaught comes, you put on Romans 5.8. When you feel like a failure, that God doesn't love you, that you've got to clean yourself up and become morally perfect again for God to love you. No, you put on Romans 5.8. God chose his love for us and that while we were still sinners, not when you cleaned yourself up, tried harder morally, gave more money to the church when you did whatever with your Bible. No, that's not what makes you right. God chose his love for us that while we were still sinners, still sinners, Christ died for us. Makes sense? That's what happens. You say, nope, I've been paid from the penalty of sin. When Satan tempts you with paths of sin that will end up harming you in the present, you say, nope, 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 I'm not not going there. I've been there before. Nope, I am being saved from the power of sin. And guys, this is what I use practically for my own life. Romans, or sorry, uh, Psalm 16 is where I go to. This is what I put on my head. I say, Lord, preserve me from this temptation that I went to for so many years so much addiction behind whatever sin. God, preserve me from that again, it says in verse one. Oh God, for you, I take refuge in you. I don't take that refuge in alcohol anymore. I don't take refuge in those weekend getaways. I don't take refuge in pornography or adultery. I don't do those things. you put that on your head. You're reminded, where is your refuge? Where is it? God, preserve me. And then verse four, it says, the sorrows of those who run after another God are these idols, the sorrows multiply when you run there. So I'm reminding myself, no, I, I, I don't go there anymore because it doesn't actually please me. It doesn't actually help me. It doesn't actually help me cope or comfort me like I thought. It brings me sorrow. So I'm going a different direction. And then verse 11, it says, God, you make known to me the path of life, the path of flourishing. God, it's in your presence, not alcohol, not weekend getaways, not pornography, that there is fullness of joy. It's in you. And at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. So when t- Satan tempts me or tempts you to take on paths of sin that harm you, you pull up Psalm 16 in your mind. You pull it up in your mind. Say, no, God, I, I take refuge in you. I don't need that alcohol. I don't need pornography. I need it in you, God. I need comfort. I need, I need control. Help me. I'm going through something here. Help me, God. You put it on your head. Does that make sense, guys? It's real practical. Last thing, when Satan causes you discouragement, it's about your future, it discourages you about the effects of sin or the plot in life that he's given you and you're struggling And you're like, what's the point of life? Nothing's going to be good for me. Future's terrible. I'm anxious about what's going to happen to me. You put on the helmet and you say, nope, one day in heaven, I will be saved from all that I'm facing now. I'm not stuck in this place forever. I'm not stuck with the addiction. I'm not stuck with the attraction. I'm not stuck with whatever I'm stuck with, the trauma in my past. I'm not stuck the way that my circumstances are. There's another place for me. And you put on Revelation 21 put on the future in your mind and you say, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and that first earth, the thing that we're all struggling with, it'll pass away one day and the sea will be no more. And then you'll see the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming out of heaven from God. It's sci fi, but it's true. Here we go. Prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And then a loud voice, all of us are going to hear Behold, the dwelling place of God is now with mankind in the flesh. And he will dwell with us and we're going to be his people. And God himself will be with us face to face with God. One day, he's going to wipe away every tear from your eye. Man, death will be no more. Neither shall every morning, no crying, nor pain, nor sin, nor trauma, no nothing, no struggle, no addiction, no relational wounds, for those things will pass away. And you put that on your head. You put it on your head. Guys, some of you need this so desperately because you've been through so much in your past. And you need to be reminded that there's a place for you where you're not going to deal with that past anymore. It doesn't come to haunt. It doesn't come to hurt anymore. And you put that on, you're reminded that for those in Christ, there is a place where that will not hurt you anymore. Does that make sense? You put it on. So when the enemy whispers those thoughts to you and he says, this situation's out of control, there's nothing but darkness for your future and misery ahead, you put on the helmet Or he says, That's it. You've messed up too much. Your parenting's trash. Your marriage is garbage. That friendship you'll never recover from with that person. You're destined to live a life of heartache and hardship because of your failure. You put on the helmet. Or even this one hey, God doesn't care about you. This is a common one for our church. Say, Hey, God wouldn't care about me because if he did, then he would step in right now and he's not, so he must not care. It's a common one for us. So what we do is we say, How do we know God cares? I look at the past, I look at the present. I'll look in the future, predestined, called, justified, glorified. If he, if he made this way for me to have a route with him, then he'll care for every single point in between. Does that make sense, guys? This is powerful and this helps you from tailspinning mentally that goes into activity of your behavior. It helps you. And God has given this to you in his word for your good. So when he whispers those lies, they're extinguished by remembering the faithfulness of God in your past, present, and future. Again, you put on Romans 28, 29, 36, Romans 1, 5, 8, you put it on. And for some of us in this room, you've got to stop listening to your own thoughts. You've got to stop listening to your own thoughts. Killing you. For the gospel truths don't come from your head. They come from heaven. So listen to heaven's words about you recorded in the Bible and not your head. Please stop. Because your head gets often confused like mine. Your head gets tempted, accused, it leads you astray. But the words of God in scripture are for your heart and to lead your heart, to lead your mind on the truth. So as we end this piece, question for you, what are you most likely to struggle believing God for? What are you most likely to struggle believing God for? Is it forgiveness of your past? Where do you struggle mentally? Where do you struggle with God here? Forgiveness about your past? Is it provision for something in your future? Is it his ability to guide you in the present? Like, what is it? What are you struggling with? Where are you most likely not to believe God? Is it with your money, your singleness, your future, your past, your present, a job situation, your family? Where is it? We all have it. Put on the helmet of salvation and remember that if he cared for you in the biggest problems of your life, which is sin and death and hell and Satan, if he cared for all of those areas, the biggest problems, then won't he certainly care for you? in every other problem. This is what it means to put on the helmet of salvation. Third thing, verse 17 says this, here's the third part. We're to put on the sword of the Spirit. Now, listen, we're not going to go around stabbing people. That's not what Christians do. I understand that we had the Crusades. We're not going to storm the Capitol. We're not going to storm something downtown. Guys, we're not about that at Koa. I just want to make sure you understand if you walked in, you're a guest or something online, I don't want you to think, like, what are, why, why do we have swords in our hands right now? We're not doing any of that. It's metaphorical and it has a meaning for us. It says, we're to put on the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. The sword of that Roman soldier, right, is that one offensive weapon that he has in his armor. One hand holds that shield, the other holds the sword. And that phrase there in verse 17, where it says, take up the sword of the spirit, that phrase means that the Bible is as 2 Timothy 3.16 says, it's the very words of God. The Bible is the very words of God. They're breathed out by him and they're given to us for our good. Hebrews 4.12 says it like this, for the word of God is it's living, it's active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword and it pierces the division of soul and spirit of, of joints and marrow. And it discerns our thoughts and the intentions of the heart. It brings it forward so that God can remove impure ones that will end up hurting you. And no creature is hidden from its sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him who all of us must give account one day. Therefore, David says in Psalm 119, 11, he says, I've hidden your word in my heart so that I may not sin against you. Then in verse 105, he says, God, your word is like a lamp unto my feet. It's a light that guides my path. Now, many people today don't view the Bible as an active sword in this way or the verses we just read. They don't view the Bible like that. Like many of us in Boston or maybe in the room, we look at the Bible like we would a sword in a museum. Like, has any of you guys visited any of the Revolutionary War museums or monuments here in Boston? You can check out actually some of the swords or the bayonets that were at the end of those long barreled rifles that they used in the Revolutionary War. You can check them out. So for a lot of people, they would uh, look in these museums at the swords with admiration for they helped uh, in the, the battle for America's independence. So people look at them and they're like, oh, that's really cool. They take a picture of the sword. They maybe even try to hold one if they're allowed to. But many of us would deem that those swords, those bayonets are practically useless now for modern day life or warfare. Like nobody's going into battle with bayonets and swords anymore that I know of. And a lot of people though, treat the Bible the same way. You might admire the Bible. You might have one on your home or your bookshelf. You might even have pictures of an Instagram post you posted two and a half years ago about a verse that you liked. But we don't read it much and why? Why? because we think it's practically useless for modern day life and spiritual warfare, like a physical sword. And even if you don't believe that in your mind, you treat it like that with your life by not reading it. And what Paul is saying to you in this, he's saying, hey guys, don't be fooled. Believing the Bible is God's word is not the same as using the Bible as God's word. Those are two different things. You can believe God's word is the Bible, but you cannot use it and you're without the sword. So he says, don't be fooled by the enemy schemes here. Don't just believe the Bible, use the Bible. Like pick it up, read it, pray through it, wrestle through its meaning, apply it. That's why our church even has a little Slack channel that we're all reading the Bible through together. There's 260 passages that we're gonna read from Genesis all the way through Revelation, all 66 books. And we're texting in about that. We're, We're talking about what we're learning. We're wrestling with it. We're trying to pick up the sword. So guys, think of the sword like this. Don't think about this, some massive sword that you're going to stab somebody else. Think about the store, sword like a scalpel in a doctor's hand. What does a doctor do with the scalpel? It removes the harmful parts of what's in your body. Maybe the cancer, maybe the part that's infected. A doctor uses a scalpel and he, he takes it out. And so God's word is like this scalpel in his physician hands, he takes the word and we take the word. And so it goes at the thoughts and the beliefs and the actions of things that cause harm in us and to others. And we take the sword of God's word and we remove those cancerous parts of our beliefs or thoughts or actions. That makes sense, guys? And when it's removed, it brings what? It brings health. It brings wholeness. That's why God's word is so sweet to us. So two side notes with this piece here. One quick one for seekers or non-Christians that are with us. And one note for, for Christians with this thought about the sword for a moment. For some of you that are, that are seekers or you're online with us, um, the Bible is a really extremely controversial thing in our day and age, right? Some call the Bible uh, a book of moral fables telling made up stories about how one ought to live. Some may call the Bible a corrupt book of man made religion that's full of errors and contradictions. And some may say it's just one of many religious texts that we should all consider. And basically, they all say the same thing. But let me ask you here what do you believe personally about the Bible, especially when it comes to modern day science and philosophy? Like, how do you, would you even know the Bible's true or reliable? How would you do it? So these are not extensive, but I just want to give you four quick tests for you to consider whether the Bible's reliable and true. And if you were to really take the time, seeker, skeptic, or you're, you're considering the claims of Christianity, I want you to take the time, look at these tests, test it for yourself and see if the Bible's reliable. And if it's so, you should base your life on it. First quick test is that you just look, I think we have it on the screen here if you want to take notes. Uh, And Christian, this might be good for you to have a note too, because you might have a non-Christian friend who asks, why should we trust the reliability of the Bible? I want to give this to you briefly. Number one is we look at the historical records. Like guys, look in the Bible and look at the people, look at the places, look at the dates, look at the archeology, span the geography, look at the events in the Bible and check it with other records. Go and see, do they coincide with real people, real dates, real geography, real events, and actual history? And most scholars, they look at this and they say, Yeah. First test, makes sense. Historical records check out. So then you move on to the next thing. You don't give your life to it yet. You look at this and consider. You look at the manuscripts. And this is what I did when I was 20, when I was not a Christian. I had to take this test. Am I going to base my life off this Bible? Am I going to give a whole life to what this thing says? I, YOLO, I got one life. To, I was the saying when I was you know, 20, it was YOLO for me. It's like, I got one life, man. Do I base it off this ancient book? I'm so confused about it. This is what tests I did. First one, historical records. Number two, you gotta look at the earliest manuscripts. Guys, the Bible wasn't written in English, right? What's the earliest manuscripts and how would we understand, how we compare them? There are more manuscripts of the New Testament than any other ancient writing. This mind-blowing. More than any other ancient writing, we've got more copies and manuscripts of the New Testament. And if you compare them up, if you line them up, they have such a high degree of consistency that you can actually know what the original authors were saying and they all line up. It is amazing how this works out. When translating the Bible, we have great accuracy knowing what the original languages say. We have the manuscripts to ensure we have a proper and accurate translation because we can see these early manuscripts of the scriptures. So after that checks out, you look at the prophecies. The Bible has a ton of predictions about lots of different events. So just look at those. If they don't come true, don't believe the Bible. That would be stupid of you. So look at all the prophecies. Look at the dates. Look at the events that were foretold. And if you look at the kings and the falls of cities and the predictions of the events, look at the predictions that just went around the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus before Jesus even showed up, like 400 some years before Jesus showed up when they're writing about him, all his events, the locations of all of that, it matches, So if that's true, then maybe if all the predictions of the cities and all that kind of stuff that people said, oh, God's telling me this about the future, and then 400 years, it actually happened to the day of the time, then maybe you go to step four and you look at the faith claims. And you look at the faith claims and they gotta line up. If they don't line up, throw the book out. They've gotta line up. If it's inconsistent, God's not inconsistent. So he wouldn't give a book that's inconsistent. So look at the faith claims. Look at the details. Look at the different books. Are there any contradictions And my friends, if you look at this honestly, you put your mind to it, you study this, you're gonna see historical records check out, prophecies check out, dates and times check out, manuscripts check out, and the faith claims align. We're the only book, and this is a hard claim to hear 2022. We're the only religious book that can make that claim with confidence and consistency, with proof if all of that's true, non-Christian friend, consider if God is a perfect God, if there's such a thing, can't he get his perfect words through imperfect people perfectly? If he's that perfect and that powerful. Can not he get his perfect words through imperfect people perfectly? Seems that, that that's what happened. If that's the case, would you consider the Bible being what guides your life and helping you with every area of your soul? Christian, let me speak to you for a brief moment. Have you ever picked the Bible like me? Just be honest with you, I'm a pastor. I get it, but hear me out. I'm a sinner. Here you go. Have you ever picked the Bible and thought this, God, I really wish that you would blow the wind and speak to me exactly what I need to hear today. You hold the Bible. You're like, God, I just need you to speak to me. I really need help in my life like right now with this issue or that issue. Like, has anybody thought that? Just, am I the only one in the room? It's an awkward moment. Anybody? One person, Ben, I appreciate that. You and me, Ben, the two guys that are in full-time ministry. Here we go. So Ben and I are struggling in the room. You open up the Bible and then you open up some totally random passage that has nothing to do with your current struggles. You're like, oh, cool, grain offerings. Oh, cool, circumcision. Oh, obscure Old Testament law about mold. And you're like, this is, how is this helpful? Anybody else experienced that? Maybe anybody else other than Ben and I? Chelsea, thank you. Three people in the room. Maybe I'll just delete this from a sermon next time. What I thought would be common for the Christian maybe is not. But the question is, why is the Bible like that? Like, if the Bible's God's word, then why shouldn't it just immediately connect and help with whatever current issue we're facing, right? Well, two things I want to tell you, Christian. Number one, in one sense, the Bible is like, in one sense, a car manual, okay? If you're having problems with the engine in your car or the engine pistons, you need to go to the engine section in the manual, not the windshield section. Make sense? Something's wrong with my tires. I don't like, how do the windshields work? I hope it fixed my tires. You need to go to the places in scripture that relate to the relationship advice you're looking for or the parenting advice or the job advice or how to make wise decisions or what do you do with your life or your future. You gotta go to those passages in the Bible because it's like, in a sense, a car manual and you gotta go to the right section to get the right help. Now, this is the second one. I think this is more interesting about the Bible here and why it can be helpful. Um, Listen, some of you have had this experience um, where you're like, I'm reading this, it's not really helpful for me right now. And you're like, the Bible is just not like relevant for me, what I'm going through right now. And so you're like, go on Google and we're texting friends. We're like, I need some help. And we're kind of talking about it. And we just think it's not relevant. Listen, I want to share with you that not every passage you read is purposed to help you with your current challenge. Maybe it's actually preparing you for a challenge down the road, a challenge that you weren't even aware of. And God is preparing it for you tomorrow when you open up the word. On this idea, there's a great Bible teacher I like to listen to, Jen Wilkin. She's at the Village Church, and, uh, and she says this. She says, what if the passage you study tomorrow is preparing you for a trial 30 years from now, 10 years from now, one year from now? Study faithfully now, trusting that no time in the word is wasted. Whether you study time resolves in neatly in 30 minutes and you get what you want or not. She says, trust the process and wield the sword. Oh, that's so good. So, so good. I love that, guys. Read the Bible to prepare for tomorrow's challenge, not just today. Store it up for you'll need it later. You'll need it later we're gonna just not do the next point and we're just gonna go on using that next week because of our time. I think I've just really loved this passage. Let me give you one last example and we'll just cut the prayer one for next week. Not that we don't pray, don't don't throw rocks at me, but you hear what I'm saying. Guys, what I love about this so much is that I had a real experience with this personally in my life. Um, In 2016, Uh, I was preparing to preach a sermon for our church in North Carolina, had a few thousand people. It was my first time preaching like Sunday morning. And it was like, hey, let's bring the youth guy up and see if he does a good job. We'll just fire him if he doesn't do a good job. That's not true, but you get what I'm trying to say. So I was preparing to preach a message to thousands of people in our home church, two different services. And I spent weeks of preparing. And I think I got one of the most challenging passages to preach on. In my opinion, when I first read, I'm like, this is so boring. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bomb this. This is going to be terrible. Guys, it was a travel log that the apostle Paul was giving to share where he went and traveled to. I was preaching a travel log. Turn left, go straight. You turn, shipwreck, got to destination. That's what I had to preach on. That was like my first Big sermon that I had to preach on. I spent weeks about it. I prayed about it. And I was like, guys, this is, this is terrible. The, 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 the text itself never mentioned God. There was no excitement in the passage. Kyle and Alex, you might've even been there. You're like, I'm gonna go to a different church now because what is, why are we preaching this? It wasn't my choice. We were in a series. It was handed to me. And I was like, you guys handed me a bomb. How do I do this? It was literally a travel log. No mention of God, Jesus, anything. And I spent weeks over this passage and I thought it was just boring, but it was really about when I looked at it and studied it, it was really about how God directs your steps and providentially leads you to his path. And so Paul's talking about how he got shipwrecked and went different spots and he kind of didn't took them all to get there. And then he kind of finally arrived there. And I realized that the passage is talking about how God directs your steps. He providentially leads you to his will for your good and his glory, even if the path is hard and it's winding. And so I prayed through the text for weeks and weeks and I tried to gain personal understanding and insight, I read commentaries, listened to sermons, pastors about it. And I'm like, how do you take a travel log and preach this thing? Well, just today, which is really cool. My wife comes to me, she's organized the bookshelf because she's Enneagram nine with the one wing. And if you know that, that just tells you enough. That was happy time for her to organize the bookshelf. She's like, Aaron, you've got to see this. And she brings it out to me. Let me show you a little picture. It's not like gonna blow your mind when you first look at it, but let me show you the next picture here. That's not it, but come to community groups. So this is a copy of what they called a DVD. Some of you don't know what those are anymore. <laughs> DVDs is what they, so they, I preach a sermon. They always recorded it and they uh, give it to some ministries when people aren't able to come to church or they're in the hospital, they're older, they give them DVD, the DVD player and they can watch it whatever. But I pulled out this sermon And look at the little date at the very bottom. And I'm not trying to be weird spiritual. I just want you to check out that date for a second. It says Sunday, October 16th, 2016. Now that date isn't significant to you, but it is to me. And the title of it is God works in providential ways for your good and his glory. That date and this passage was all about a travelogue, about how God is leading you and guiding you to next steps in hardships. That date was the very date that my daughter Kiana was born in terrible and hard circumstances. And God was working in providential ways for our family's good, for her good and his glory. And I looked at that and it might not be like, we'll give you tingles like it gave me, but it gave me so tingles. It gave, to think about that, I was writing a sermon about a travel log and our family would eventually travel to Boston. There would be hardships in her life and our life. And I was reading the scripture. I was like, how do I get anything from this? And the very day I preached, it was the very day that Kiana was born and God was working even in my sermon prep and providential ways to get my heart ready to move to Boston, to go through hardships, to go from this town and this apartment to this thing for this little girl that was in need of help and need of healing. Now, again, All I'm saying that really long, obnoxious story was for this reason. When you open up the scriptures tomorrow, you may read some obscure passage that has no relevance for what you have right now, but God knows what you need in the future. He's already there and he's preparing you for it now. Nothing is wasted, Christian. Nothing's wasted. You may think it's not helping with your parenting now. It's not helping with your marriage now. It's not helping with anything, but nothing is wasted, my friends. Pick up the sword and you wield it. Even if it doesn't connect with your circumstance, one day I trust it will. Trust the process, wield the sword. Let's pray.